Welcome to the Energy Intelligence Podcast. My name is Luke Johnson. I am the Deputy Editor of the Energy Intelligence Finance Newsletter. Today, I'm joined by Casey Merriman, the head of our new Competitive Intelligence Service and the Editorial Director of the Western Hemisphere. How are you doing, Casey? Good. Hi, Luke. We also got Noah Brenner here today. He is our Executive Editor of Operations and the Editorial Director for the Eastern Hemisphere. Hey, Noah. Hi, Luke. As hopefully many of our listeners are aware, last week we hosted the inaugural Energy Intelligence Forum, a virtual conference that brought in thousands of delegates and many key leaders from today's energy industry. And it was a grueling week for many of us, especially Noah and Casey. So now that we've all had a moment to breathe a bit, uh, do either of you have any just general thoughts about how the conference went before we dig into some of the specific topics that were discussed? No, I mean, I think overall it went went very, very well. I mean, it was really, a, I think, an incredibly strong turnout. And, um, you know, overall, it's it's always, a, you know, you're doing something new. You know, it was held virtually for the first time, um, the Energy Intelligence Forum. And, uh, I, I, you know, I think overall it went very, very well. I was very, very happy with with the level of discussion and, um, and the engagement on the part of the delegates. Hmm. Okay, well, I think a lot of those uh, sessions are still available for people to go back and listen to if they missed any of it. Uh, so check that out at energyintelligenceforum.com. Uh, but let's start getting into some of the meat of what we heard last week. And I, I was thinking we might start talking about one of the biggest challenges facing the energy industry today, and that is the waning availability of financing and just basically a, a structural capital flight away from oil and gas. So Casey... Uh, what was the message we heard from our panels last week about this new reality and, and how the lack of access to capital is affecting corporate strategies, you know, just around operations, but also around things like M&A? Yeah, I think you hit on the key word when you said structural, right? This industry is full of cycles. Um, it can be very difficult uh, for people to want to step back in and invest uh, if, say, they did so at an up cycle and then watch their returns dwindle. But but what we are seeing here is kind of twofold. It's one, a response to the industry's, frankly, abysmal returns performance over the past decade and the enormous amount of, of capital that was destroyed or has failed to return to you know shareholders, bondholders, you name it, uh, tons of underperforming loans at banks. Uh, and then you couple that with uncertainty about the future around what investing in oil and gas looks like and kind of a rising prerogative by lenders and investors to hit ESG metrics and what they put their money in. And so what we have seen is the number of banks that are willing to lend to conventional upstream you know, oil and gas development has shrunk. Uh, the amount of money that banks who are still willing to participate in the space in are willing to le loan is smaller. Those loans have to compete with power and infrastructure, renewable projects in, in a new way. And there is just a complete lack of capital for certain things like funding M&A. And so what you are seeing is the industry kind of have to come to grips with having to be more self-funding than it is used to. And that's a huge uh, onus for an incredibly capital-intensive industry, um, one that's dealing with 
natural declines in it in its base and and the industry isn't kind of quite sure what the solution is to this just yet you know how they know that they have to demonstrate look we can be good stewards of capital we can improve our returns but also i think there's an understanding we have to in some way demonstrate that we are environmentally responsible even if we still are wanting to do oil and gas I was just going to correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, we really did sort of hear an inflection point maybe in um, mm-hmm. so in the finance panel uh, at the EI forum, which is always one that uh, is always very, very well attended. And, and um, a lot of people look forward to it because it is kind of a, an annual checkup on the financial health of the industry. And it did seem that we saw this this kind of shift in the mindset of, of our panelists mm-hmm. who represented some of the largest uh, investment banks and financiers involved in oil and gas. Um, to this idea that that maybe the capital wasn't going to be coming back in on the next up cycle, that, that what we had seen was was perhaps um, a, a more structural shift in the way that global capital is looking at, at oil and gas. Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. It, it was very much this idea of you can't do a business as usual kind of fixed to this, right? The the industry's entire kind of investment thesis and the way that it approaches lenders has to change. Well, and I think around M&A, I'll be especially interested to see how the Conoco-Concho deal plays out. Um, I mean, uh, uh, you know, one of the sort of darlings of the US EMP space, Conoco, taking over really a darling of the Permian Basin in Concho with what started out as a 5% premium all stock deal. And I think now is down to like 1.8% at current levels. Um, I think one thing that that had made me sort of reticent to, to endorse the, the coming wave of M&A was that I didn't think that you would see um, capitulation on the part of shareholders for some of these darling US independents who have lost a lot of value, but remain, you know, quite um, popular with a certain set of investors. But I mean, I think if they're willing to take, you know, if Concho investors are willing to take a 5% premium all stock deal from Conoco, uh, you know, uh, maybe that changes at least my outlook um, and what might be possible. So one of the way one of the ways that companies are dealing with the, the changing financial situation is they've just been kind of forced to, you know, reevaluate their corporate structures and and really be selected selective about what what parts of their businesses they want to emphasize. I think European majors like like BP and Total and Shell are, are good examples of the sort of uh, corporate restructuring or at least, uh, you know, a restructuring of the strategy um, and points of emphasis. But do we have a sense about how well this tactic is playing with investors, both in the short term and the long term? I mean, if if companies get this right, is is this a way that they attract some new investment into energy production? Well, I mean, I would say, at least in the short term, I don't think it's playing especially well. Uh, you know, we're still seeing, you know, uh, say if you look at uh, a BP who came out with a, you know, a very ambitious uh, investor presentation um, around their new strategy. Um, you know, their stock is down. Oh, let's see, they're still down fifteen percent in the past month. So, kind of in that period since we've heard from them. Um, They've fallen by 15%. They're down more than 57% in the trailing year. Um, so we haven't necessarily seen these, these kind of major change initiatives resonate with investors yet. Um, you know, on the other hand, I think there's, uh, you know, there's some discussions earlier this morning around, you know, is the investor base that these companies have right now really going to be the investor base that, that 
you know, would stick with them or, or would buy into a transition type of, of business plan or business model. And so, you know, I, I think we do need to give them some, um, a, a grace period in terms of kind of letting investors shuffle in and out of, of, of an investment. Um, but no, right now it doesn't look like that investors are buying into this, um, you know, are, are valuing them and their potential to transition uh, the way that they would like to, uh, the way that these companies would like to see valued. I know we've heard, um, I believe it was Total CEO Patrick Poyene in September mentioned that, you know, his his board does expect um, Total shares to re-rate, uh, you know, that investors will come a- around to Total's big energy strategy. Um, and I, it seemed like it gave him about a five-year window uh, before, you know, that they would start to look at, you know, potentially alternatives or, or different ways to structure the company or things like that. But, you know, it seemed like they were, um, you know, patient or at least patient within a, a window of, of some years to, to really trying to tell the story to investors. Yeah. And I think one thing that's interesting that we have seen is, I mean, if it doesn't matter, yeah, if you're a super transitioning uh, IOC or, you know, tr- want to be tried and true oil and gas, I mean, everyone's been pretty pretty decimated in equity markets this year, but we are starting to see some divergence um, like among the group, you know, relative to each other. And I think what's interesting in that is what you're seeing is that kind of, say you take the majors, you're seeing a company like Chevron that's, you know, very much committed to an oil and gas led model as among the top performers. Um, It has the best balance sheet of the majors. It has been really strong on its kind of near term cash flow performance. It has really strong line of sight on how it can execute its strategy in the next few years. And actually, Total is right up there with it, right? So, uh, and I would say of the the three kind of European ma- majors that we've seen embrace these strategies, um, you know, they, they have been able to be a little bit more, more concrete on those plans, you know, because they have been at it a bit longer. They have a stronger balance sheet than, than a BP does. And for now, their dividend looks safe. So it seems that if if investors are kind of signaling anything, it's that they do, it's not just a strategy that needs to be kind of a, a narrative. They need to know that part of it, but they also need to see as kind of near term as possible, some, some proof in the pudding, so to speak. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I want to dig into Chevron uh, in a minute, but uh, just pulling back a little bit more generally, Noah, I, we hear and we heard a lot about, you know, advantage oil and gas, you know, basically these resources that are uh, the most attractive, the cheapest to develop, closest to markets and infrastructure and, and stuff like that. Um, what does the continued focus on these advantage assets mean for future supply? And, you know, how sustainable is this strategy that's focused primarily around these advantage assets, you know, kind of long term? Well, I mean, it's in terms of future supply. I think one thing that that I took away from uh, from the EI forum sessions was that you know potentially there is, while there is a lot of oil and gas out there, and there's a lot of oil and gas that maybe falls kind of towards the middle of the cost curve. You know, truly advantaged assets, I think, do remain, um, you know, st- still remain pretty scarce out there. Um, the the types of of uh, you know break evens that a Saudi Aramco or, or a company like that can can offer really are quite unique. Um, I think it was a McKinsey uh, slide or, or um, figure saying something like, you know, of the 35 million barrels a day of production in the hands of, of NMCs, I, I, I want to say it was something around 20 million barrels a day was considered to, to be low cost. Um, 
And so to me, that was surprising as somebody who, you know, oftentimes you think NOC and, and assume that those are, are very low cost resources. And so I think that it's a challenge that's not just for the public companies, but also for, um, for the national oil companies. And I do think that um, it really means that first off, one, um, you know, there aren't a lot of these advantaged assets out there, but also two, uh, you know, these companies need to work to keep them advantaged. I mean, there are a lot of assets out there that, that were previously advantaged and, and, you know, through cost escalation and mismanagement and, and over-engineering or, you know, whatever that host of factors were, um, they, you know, the break-even cost on them rose. And so I think that uh, the challenge for, for those companies that are going to be pursuing a, a, a low-cost oil or low-cost oil and gas strategy and really, let's be honest, even for those companies that are big energy, uh, the the role of low cost oil and gas assets is going to remain vital for their cash flows, particularly through to about 2030, um, is really, you know, making sure that they set themselves up to take advantage of, of what they do have out there um, to uh, to keep costs low. So I think it's both, a, a, you know, it, it's scarce to begin with, and it also requires a really strong execution to maintain. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, there's obviously a lot of hope pinned to natural gas uh, in the future, given the presumed role it will play in the energy transition, you know, just as kind of a, a overall cleaner fuel. Um, and certainly there are some lucrative and, and well-positioned advantage gas plays that are among, you know, <laughs> some of the world's most high quality assets. But Casey, one of the more interesting things to emerge from the discussions that we heard last week was Chevron's seeming embrace of gas, and you could even call it maybe a pivot towards gas, uh, which is significant coming from the industry's most oil-weighted major. Uh, but w- what does Chevron's new public emphasis on gas say about this commodity and, and how it figures into the global energy future? Yeah, it was really interesting. So we sat down with CEO Mike Worth as part of the forum. And, you know, I kind of put to him, you know, hey, look, I would say traditionally, you've been an oil bull. So, you know, what are you thinking kind of about the prospects of a future oil demand? And his response was maybe, maybe I'm not so much an oil bull, I'm an energy optimist, right? And he was talking about gas and and, and all these other kind of roles that, that hydrocarbons can still play in the mix. And, you know, I think uh, what Chevron has, not that it's completely new, but is coming around to is this idea that if you want investors back, right, if we go back to kind of that first issue, you have to prove two things. You have to prove that you can earn a return, an acceptable return. And now you also have to be lower carbon. And that is going to be reflected in just generally attracting attracting investor attention, but also in, I think, the, the future outlook for global energy demand, right, in that mix. And so, you know, what we're hearing from them is, you know, we just saw them with the Noble Energy Acquisition gain a huge position in Eastern Mediterranean gas. Um, Mike Worth told us they were interested in participating in Qatar's LNG expansion if given the opportunity. You know, for them, they aren't against the energy transition. Uh, They are investing in some very interesting kind of commercial scale integrated renewable projects this year, but they are not sure exactly how that transition is going to unfold. They know that they need to get cleaner. And so for them, you know, gas is a way for them to kind of stay in their wheelhouse, but demonstrate a commitment to a lower carbon energy production mix. 
Yeah, and I think especially for Chevron, that's always, you know, they've always been very, very clear about, um, you know, if they don't see a competitive advantage in a certain area or a certain market, they're not going to to necessarily get involved in that. You know, it, it might be a, a space other companies can make money, um, but they've been very, very disciplined um, in how they've approached that type of expansion. Um, but as you said, they yeah. have found opportunities still. Yeah, exactly. And it's not it's not that they're not like they're new to gas, right? I mean, they have a massive LNG uh, presence. But the idea is that to date, what we've really seen is them, they like oil, and then they like oil linked gas, right? These traditional LNG components. So for them to kind of say, hey, look, we're looking at these other gas opportunities, we're looking at regional gas markets, right? That that's really kind of where that step change can be can be heard. Okay, let's um, finish up here, uh, change gears a little bit and talk about renewables and and power and how they they fit into um, portfolios of some of the big energy companies today. Uh, It it seems like every quarter, if if not every month, we have more upstream oil companies talking about renewables and power and how they're a growing part of what they do. And and many, including Chevron, are saying recent investments in these sectors are already competitive with their traditional business lines. Um, but I mean, Noah, what, what is the latest we're hearing on the business case for renewables and, and power? And is this a trend that could actually start to accelerate a little faster than we might have anticipated? Sure. I mean, I think it's 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 rare to to hear a presentation, especially from, from any of the, the European uh, integrated oil and gas companies that doesn't have a strong renewables component to it or a strong renewables and power, I guess, component. Uh, to it, and and companies are, are reorganizing themselves and kind of reimagining uh, their workforce, their uh, you know everything about their business um, to be able to better execute some of these uh, you know, these broader portfolio goals. But I think a couple things that I thought are, were particularly interesting, and one is uh, around Total, and that's you know this is a company that with its 2011 um, SunPower acquisition was really a, a very early entrant into renewables in a, in a big way. And it hasn't necessarily gone as, you know, it hasn't, not everything has worked out for them the way that they thought it would. Um, you know, recently in September, they lowered their their returns target or, or the, the returns that investors might be able to expect from some of their renewable investments to roughly greater than 10%. And that was previously, they were projecting greater than 15%. Um, and, you know, CEO Patrick Poyne was just very, um, uh, honest, I guess that you know, if you're going to go into these very competitive uh, power, uh, power provided, uh, power tenders uh, to provide power, um, that you you know you're not going to be able to go in and and, and bid you know necessarily a 15% rate of return. Now, on the other hand, that doesn't mean that there aren't places that you can't you know that you can realize that um, you know some places are upwards of 20%. But you know this is a very very competitive business, and you're dealing not only with an oil and gas, a set of oil and gas players that are trying to get into it, but a set of um, entrenched uh, veterans, renew- veteran renewables players uh, that that are good at their business. I mean, they've been making money in this in this space for some time. Um, but I think the other thing to me that that's interesting around this is just you know we talk about these massive amounts of of capacity that that oil and gas companies would like to add. Um, and given the the low cost of capital that we're seeing, and just this massive push towards green power on the part of you know both government supported efforts, but but just in in terms of society in general, that it does seem like there's a massive opportunity to um, 
for companies to play in this space. Uh, the, the level of build out that's going to be required is huge. And you know, while the numbers being thrown around by the likes of a BP or a Total uh, are, are equally huge, it does seem like that, that there is a space for oil companies, at least initially, to, to make investments. Now, I think it's going to be up to those new approaches, those new structures, um, you know, those new outlooks uh, in terms of how, you know, what kind of returns can these can companies expect from them. Um, but I do think that there's, it'll definitely be interesting to see in, in an area that uh, around strategically is going to be uh, really exciting to watch over the next, say, three years or so. Yeah, Noah, what do you think about the kind of this idea? I mean, it's not obviously stated so directly because oil and gas will clearly play a role in these portfolios, even in the Euro majors for, for years to come. But you know, kind of the flip side of this, I think, is that there's just been a maybe a step change in what an oil and gas return will look like. You know, I think that it, there seems to be kind of an unstated acknowledgement that the, the traditional returns uh, are not going to necessarily see the upside that maybe they would have seen in in, in previous cycles or what you can kind of count on as a mid-cycle return is lower. And that kind of helps these businesses become competitive. I mean, do you think there's some of that going on too? No, I, I mean, I think there definitely is, especially in the near term. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I think in case you and I have talked about this, the potential for maybe oil prices do go up towards the end of, of this decade, or, you know, we do see a last bull run, but I mean, in the near term or in the near to medium term, we're looking at challenge demand. Um, a lot of supply out there, projects that were still brought forward uh, using, you know, more traditional or more high, high cost um, designs and methods. And so, yes, I mean, that idea that, you know, you stuck a straw on the ground and you were looking at a 20% rate of return without really trying too hard uh, is just simply not true. And I, I'm not sure really that it was ever true. If it, I, I guess maybe in some in some periods it was, but I mean, you know, if, if you went across the full kind of up up and down cycle in the commodity, um, whether or not, you know, those returns metrics would hold up. And, and you know, uh, Patrick Pune Total pointed this out as well. I mean, returns in renewables right now are buoyed by low interest, uh, low in, a low interest rate environment. And, you know, were that to change, you know, it, that, that changes the equation of renewables. But right now, if you can borrow it 10% and, and invest in a you know, win a solar tender uh, in some place like Spain or something like that, and are able to have very, um, uh, very secure revenues that are, are very predictable. And then you're able to then sell a portion of that project and, and bring forward some of the, the value and, and use project finance. I mean, there's a whole kind of set of financial structures that, that um, you know, boost returns around renewables or boost the attractiveness around that. Um, and at the same point, you know, there's some of those things are, are headwinds on the oil and gas side of things. So I think, um, you know, it's it, one of the things that makes me think of kind of as well is, is and around this predictability of revenue is sort of when you're pairing like a short cycle, what we might have thought of as, say, the short cycle shale investment with the longer cycle kind of steadier conventional um, projects where you had kind of revenues coming in, um, you know, quite, uh, quite predictably. And so, you know, I think it could be very attractive for a company to pair that predictable revenue stream from renewables with the commodity cycle kind of ups and downs that you're going to see from oil and gas. And sure, at the top end, you're going to reap great returns from that oil and gas portion of the portfolio. But 
at the bottom end of the commodity cycle, you know, it's going to be the renewables uh, investments that, that would say allow you to keep your dividend uh, stable, even at a low, low oil price environment. Okay, well, uh, there are lots of other topics that were discussed last week, but uh, we can't get to them today. Uh, but uh, most of the sessions should be available to view online, as I mentioned earlier, so if people want to go check them out. Um, but that is all from us for now. So thank you very much, Casey. Absolutely. Thank you, Luke. And thank you, Noah. Thanks for having me. And thanks to everyone for listening. To read all of our news and views and to subscribe to any of our services, go to our website, energyintel.com. My name is Luke Johnson, and we'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.